Would you please uh, have, have your Bibles ready? Just, just, just have your Bibles ready. Get ready to open up your Bible this morning. Uh, and by, by the Father's grace, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit will also open up our hearts as we open up the Word. And that He, the Spirit, will open up our hearts to see the Father's Son, the incarnate Word, through the written Word that has been entrusted to His people for generations through the sands of time, to this very hour as we gather to hear Christ speak through His Word to His church. That said, we read in the book of Hebrews in the fourth chapter that the Word of God, and I quote, is living and active. Indeed, this, this book is active. This book is alive. Though this book is ancient, it continues in both relevance and in its activity, in its power. So with this in mind, would you open up your Bibles and find your way to the book of Proverbs and find your way to the sixth chapter in the book of Proverbs. Today I want to take us into the book of Proverbs to exposit the sacred text of Scripture that we find in Proverbs. I want to let the original meaning of the text speak with power, and I want to do so with application to the powers of our day in light of recent rumblings in the highest court of our land. Looking at the sermon title on your outlines, hopefully you all got outlines this morning. The, the sermon title this morning is Imago Row. Uh, looking at our culture here in North America in recent weeks, you probably have uh, an idea of where I'm going with a sermon that is entitled Imago Row. That said, if a Latin title like Imago is not readily discernible to you or translatable in your mind, I don't know what Imago means, uh, Pastor Matt. I, I'm I'm not hip on the Latin. Don't worry about that. I will get into what imago means. I will most certainly explain the term imago. And further, I will explain the alias or the moniker Rho if you don't know that reference or if my reference a moment ago to the recent rumblings in the highest court of our land is something that goes over your head. You're like, what are you talking about? That's, that's great. You're, I'm glad that you're here this morning. Trust me, we're going to get there in terms of those terms. However, before we get there, uh, in terms of the terms and the title of the message this morning, Imago Row, more importantly, I want to set up for you by way of introduction for us as disciples, as followers of Jesus, this text that I've asked you to turn to in the book of Proverbs. Disciples are learners. They're, they're followers. Jesus called followers unto himself. They were disciples. He was, he was in the process of teaching them. Learners. They're apprentices. They're not just learning information, but they're getting in the trenches and they're getting dirty with the things that they are learning. They're going to get out there. They're going to serve. They're going to they're get dirty with it. And so we're, we're learning things. We're disciples and we take what we learn, we apply it, we go out into the world with it. So I've asked for you to turn to the sixth chapter of the book of Proverbs. The ancient book known as Proverbs in the Bible has traditionally been held and with good reason to go back to the days of Israel's King Solomon. Subsequently, it has ties to the great King Hezekiah as well, and a handful of otherwise sages from the kingdom of Israel. Speaking of sagely wisdom, this book, the book of Proverbs, it, it, it is devoted to just that, to sagely wisdom. Scholars categorize this book as belonging to the genre of wisdom literature. It aims to give the reader uh, of the book of Proverbs instruction in wisdom, in order to live in God's creation broadly and more specifically to live in God's covenant as his people. A moment ago I mentioned the relevance and the activity of the scripture. I cited Hebrews 4 that the word of God is living and active. And now with our copies of the Bible open to Proverbs chapter 6, 
I, I hope that we will encounter its, its life and its animation as we come to the text. Listen to the context of this section of God's Word, and you tell me whether or not it is relevant to us today as we come to the text. Proverbs chapter 6, by way of introduction, is explaining to the reader four formidable foes or forces to human life and God's creation. I said broadly, Proverbs deals with having wisdom in God's creation. More narrowly, it deals with God's covenant for His people. That this is a relevant text. There's four formidable foes or forces here in Proverbs chapter 6 that are highly relevant to us. They are, number one, uh, bad financial decisions or investments. Is that relevant? Amen. Uh, making bad financial investments. Number two, laziness. This is the second formidable foe or force against having God's wisdom in creation. So we have bad finances, we have uh, laziness. Thirdly, we have just broadly what I'll call drama, uh, living with drama. Uh, this is a formidable fo force that goes against having wisdom in God's creation. And fourthly, in terms of formidable foes, we have lust. Uh, bad investments, laziness, drama, and lust, right? These, these are relevant things. Have, haven't you wrestled with these? Lust, laziness, drama, bad decisions. Of course you have wrestled with using your time and your treasure, your money and your moments in ways that are wise in God's creation. You ever wonder how or long to be better in these areas of life or in these temptations that are common to fallen humanity? If so, good, uh, because you're in a text of scripture that's going to talk to it. If not, get with it, repent, and get ready to hear you know, God's word and respond accordingly. These formidable foes or forces rob humanity of their rest, uh, their joy, their, their flourishing. It, it leads to stress, to sin, to darkness, to dysfunction, and to death. Somewhere around the middle section of this chapter, in verses 16 through 23, we are given a list of things that break the heart of the creator of humanity, the one that his people stand in covenant with. And, and, and indeed, uh, this section of verses 16 through 23 that I want to show you, it really puts it in jarring terminology. It grabs the reader who is in covenant with God and, and who cares about having a right relationship with God, the giver of life and the gracious provider of salvation. It grabs the reader in particular because it uses the language of divine hate. It talks about what God hates. Draw your eyes at Proverbs chapter 6. Look at the text. There is a list here, verse 16 through 23, of things that God hates. I, a lot of times people like to think about God as being a God of love and to be sure he is a God of love. Uh, but love is not the antithesis of hate. There are things that, that God hates. And here in this text he's saying, look, here's these formidable forces or foes that stand against humanity and, and God's creation in terms of living wisely and walking in covenant with him. And then you got this little section in here that's, that's like, hey, this is God's heart. These are things that God hates. And according to the standard list, you, you, you have lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. Let me, let me put those in front of you. Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. Many have popularly referred to this list as the seven deadly sins. Perhaps you have heard that. And in tradition and in reflection of God's people in history, these vices have, have also been recognized to have uh, counters to them. And the counters are commonly referred to as the seven heavenly virtues. They are, let me put them in front of you, 
They are chastity, temperance, charity, diligence, patience, gratitude, and humility. You see how these are counters. Pride, humility, envy, gratitude, wrath, patience, so on and so forth. So, so you have these in front of you, the virtues and the vices. These vices that go against uh, a, a, a flourishing and creation and living wisely in God's creation. These vices that go against walking with God in his covenant for his people. And you have these virtues in front of you. Now let's draw our eyes to the text of Proverbs. I've kind of set it up by way of introduction, giving you some context to step into this text that God has for his people Israel and for Christ's church to walk in covenant with him. Now let's just read the text and let the text speak for itself without me yapping about its context. Let's just read it. There are six things, verse 16, which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, the false witness who utters lies, one who spreads strife among brothers. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart and around your neck. And when you walk, they will guide you. And when you sleep, they, they will watch over you. And when you wake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a, is a lamp and the teaching is a light. And the, the reproofs for discipline are a way of life. They're a way of life. There are two ways to live life, the text is showing us. There's a way of light and there is a way of darkness. Now, one might be tempted to say that that sounds like an oversimplification. There's only two ways. There's only two options, life and darkness. That's it. That's all we got. There's no gray in the middle. It sounds like an oversimplification. But the reality is the reality. There really is two ways to live life. There's darkness and there's light. Likewise, there really is a way of true spiritual living and also a way of being spiritually deceived. There is a way of living for God in His grace, and there is a way of living for one's self, resting in your work, in your way, and your will. Speaking of true spirituality and God's grace and God's way in the teachings of Jesus, there is a popular section known as the Beatitudes, which is a recording of, of these sayings from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, and from Jesus' Sermon on the Plain in the Gospel of Luke. And Students of Scripture have long noted the similarities and the complementarities of these public discourses of Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount, Luke and Matthew respectively, with this passage in front of us in Proverbs chapter 6. So in terms of teaching you by way of introduction, it's important that I bring this up for you. In particular, I'd love to give you something to have a devotional in this week. Make sure, just, just write it down. Study this week, Luke 6, Matthew 5. And compare it to what you are learning here and studying here in Proverbs chapter 6. There's much for you to meditate on. To set up your, your study this week, would you consider some examples really quickly, and then we'll get back into Proverbs. In terms of the teachings of Jesus, in Matthew's Beatitudes, you have the first Beatitude in Matthew 5, 5, which is, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And you can see a contrast here with the first hated thing in Proverbs chapter 6, the haughty eyes. You have the poor in spirit, and you have the haughty eyes, you see. Or consider the seventh blessed thing on Jesus' lips in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. You have the blessed are the peacemakers, and you contrast this with the seventh uh, vice, this abomination of the one who stirs up strife, the person who is against peacemaking and is stirring up division. As you study the teachings of Jesus and the words of wisdom here in the book of Proverbs, 
be mindful that Jesus himself is wisdom incarnate. Specifically, he is the eternal son in the flesh who eternally dwells with the Father and the Spirit. He is the one who has come not only to give us wisdom, but to give us life, amen? To rescue us from a, a, a world of woes, to, 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 to give us a just verdict in God's divine courtroom based on his work that rescues us from our vices. We look at the list of vices and we stand uh, uh, guilty of these things. We look at the list of virtues and we stand struggling for these things. Behold the Christ who has come, who has no struggle for virtue. It is, it is his. He is virtue. And he has come to give his virtue in the place of our vice. Behold, this is the good news of God, that one has come who has died for us and has given us more than wisdom, has given us more than a way of life, he has given us himself in an intimate relationship. We gather here today because of this relationship as brothers and sisters in him. We gather here today because of the grace of the one who has is, who is given himself for us. Sinners who deserve nothing from him, let, let alone who deserve him. We have been mercifully granted repentance from such vices such as the ones that are before us here in Proverbs chapter 6. And we have been welcomed into his family in spite of these vices. We have been given the, the blessings of those who are poor in spirit. We have been given the power of his spirit for the mending of our broken spirits. We find in him forgiveness and wholeness in life. We find in him salvation and wisdom. Now speaking of uh, the way of wisdom, let me focus here in the text of Proverbs this morning uh, for purposes of unpacking for you what, what I have prepared in terms of this title this morning, Imago Row. Well, the book of Proverbs speaks to the predicament of what I'm calling Imago Row. So draw your eyes back at the text of Proverbs. We've, we've had a little sidebar here with Jesus and reflecting on the triune God and what he has done for us. And I've given you some things to study this week. Draw your eyes back at the text of Proverbs. Draw your eyes at the list of these vices. The first vice we see is haughtiness. And then the second vice that we see is deceit. If you have lived long enough, and God has graciously opened your eyes to see it, you have seen haughtiness and deception not only in others, but he has opened your eyes, hopefully, to see it within yourself. The haughty are proud. And no doubt you have sensed pride before if the spirit is at work in you. Uh, pride is, is a horrible thing. Deceitfulness is a horrible thing. The deceitfulness of others is a painful thing. Those who run around dividing and deceiving and bamboozling. Those who run around, as we say today, gaslighting. Those who run around betraying friendships. That, it's a very, very painful thing. Speaking of betrayal, I think of Psalm 109, verse 2. If you care to look it up, it, it gives a description of the deceitful. Psalm 109, verse 2 is a verse that is picked up in the New Testament, specifically in Acts chapter 1, verse 20, to describe the chief of betrayers, Judas, the money grabber of the poor and backstabber of the Lord. We're looking at the vices. We see haughtiness. We see deceit. The Lord opens our eyes to see those, again, not only in others, but in ourselves. It's easy to spot it in Judas. It's another thing to spot it in ourselves for the ways in which we have even betrayed our Lord, but he is gracious to draw us to himself. Okay, now I want to take you to the third vice, and this is where I want to camp in terms of really unpacking today's message of Mago Row. Moving, moving from deceitfulness to haughtiness, look at the third vice in the list in Proverbs. It focuses on those who do what? 
shed innocent blood. Those who take the life of the innocent. Mind you, in Scripture, we are taught that none are innocent in the eyes of God. We are all sinners. That said, let me emphasize, in the eyes of God. Okay? Let's, let's emphasize that. In the eyes of God. God is the giver of life. God is the giver of law. It is his prerogative to judge, and it is further his prerogative to take life. Because it, it was his power that gave life, and it was his providence that gave law. This is certainly not within our power or within our right. That is, humans on their own have no right to take life into their own hands. It is an egregious event. It is an atrocious act to take the life of another into our own hands. In fact, the taking of life, the taking of innocent life, specifically murder, is tied in the Bible to none other than the devil himself, who is said in the words of our Lord in John 8:44 to be a and I quote, murderer from the beginning. The devil hates humans. The devil wants humans dead. He wants humans to kill each other. And I will explain more about why that is the case in just a moment, but for now, draw your eyes at the text, at the sacred text of Proverbs. Proverbs 6, the vice of those who shed innocent blood in front of us. I, I, I need you to look at this text. I want you to reflect on this text as, as I'm talking this morning. And as we have chapter 6 in front of us, let me show you something. I'm all about context. You know that about me. Keep a finger in chapter 6, but turn over to chapter 1 and see this vice comes out the gate when you begin the book. Proverbs begins with the Proverbs, verse 1 of chapter 1 of, of the king of, of Israel. Draw your eyes from chapter 1 and flow down to verse 10. My son, it says, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say... Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause. The text begins with this, this warning. And again, I was talking about wisdom and how it's broadly about flourishing in God's creation, more narrowly and specifically about flourishing within God's covenant. And so out of the gate, the author who wants to give the reader wisdom begins cautioning about those who are bloodthirsty, about, about those who will ambush the innocent. And, 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 and here the text tells us, right, that they do so without cause. Now, they're not going to claim they do so without cause. They're going to claim they have a cause. They're motivated by something. They're under the spell of someone. I said I'll get to the devil thing in just a moment. But draw your eyes at verse 15. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. For their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. They are those who shed blood, and their bloodthirstiness ultimately comes back to haunt them. Draw your eyes at verse 18, for it says, They lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. They bring ruin to themselves when they are on this path. This, this vice leads to this violence that then is the undoing of their own lives. And sin is that way, isn't it? You've all tasted from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know that sin promises you certain things. And then when you partake, maybe for a moment, you have the illusion that you got that, but ever so quickly, you realize that you have been hoodwinked, you've been led astray, because sin makes promises that it cannot deliver on. And you find yourself enslaved and ensnared, and you find yourself caught in the whirlwind with it, so too with bloodthirst, they will lead to their own destruction. This is the way of blood. And it is contrasted with the way of the wise and the righteous who seek life and who seek love. 
So then Proverbs, you got chapter 1 in front of you, it opens with these warnings about those who wait for blood, and then this is picked up in the sixth chapter. So go back to the sixth chapter, look at the text, find the list of the vices again where we were, the things that the Lord hates, the, Lord, the, the loving Lord is showing his heart to the reader, and I want you to see something in the text. Notice in the list of the vices here that it involves the body. What is haughtiness tied to? The eyes. What is deceit tied to? The tongue. And then violence is tied to what? The hands. And then it moves to what, according to the text? To the feet. And the feet, what do they do? They run to wickedness. You see, the vices within the heart of man are not content to stay passively within the heart of man. They want to move to the eyes. They want to move to the hands, to the tongue, to the feet. They want to go from within to without. Pride is within, but it doesn't stay within. It's going to come out in displays of superiority and condescension and power grabs. Deceit is within, but it is going to move into lying, into dissension. Anger is within, oh, but it comes out. It comes out. It comes out, and people die. So the issue is that these things don't stay within. You could put a lid on it as much as you want, but it's going to come out. And so this then leads to the problem, and, and the, the problem is fundamentally the heart. The, the, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We are sinners by nature. We are born this way, and hence the Scriptures call us to come to God in repentance that we would be born again and set free from this that we would be given new hearts and, and rescued from this. We're, 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 we're sinners by nature. We need to be rescued. We have these vices, and our virtues can't cover them. You can't kill a man and then love a man and think that balances things out. That's not the way that it works. We need salvation. We need new heart. And praise be to God that those things are to be had and found in Christ and in Christ alone. We are sinners, again, by nature. Now, that isn't the way that it always was, which brings us to the next point on the outline. We move from the introduction for disciples to Imago Dei. The Bible opens with creation. The book of Proverbs is about living wisely in creation. The Bible opens with creation. It opens with the God who is, Father, Son, and Spirit. It opens with God creating humanity in his image. That's, that's in fact, image, Imago. The Latin word Imago means image. Imago Dei is a term that we use to describe the image of God. Imago, image, Dei, God. God creates humanity in his image. To be in his image is to be in relationship with him. Uh, further, it is to stand in a certain uh, role within his creation, uh, to, to, to image him not just in relationship, but also in terms of, of vocation. To, to image him is to know his love, is to give his love. In, in, in fact, when Jesus was asked about what the greatest commandment it was, he said it's to love God and to love your neighbor. To be in the image of God is to live that way and to know this reality of, of the love of God and to make the love of God known, to love your neighbor and to love God. Now, God creates humanity, Imago Dei, for this, to love him and to love one another. And you follow the storyline of it, and it's a sad story of unrequited love. It's a story of rejection which leads to something that we refer to as the fall. Humanities rebelled against the creator, the giver of life, and as a result, the consequence of this is the taking back of life, and so there's death. 
The one who gives harmony to creation is rebelled against, and so there's disharmony. I shared with you a moment ago that I wanted to say something about the devil and why the devil is bent on bloodthirst, and this is why. Because humanity is a mago day. And the devil has rebelled against the creator, and every time he sees the creation that is in his image, it rouses him up. You see, when you, when you hate something or someone, which you ought not to do, to see the image of it reminds you of that someone, and you go, oh, I hate that image, I want to destroy that image, I want to rip it down, I want to throw it in the trash can, because it reminds me of that, and that I don't like. The enemy of God hates the image of God, and as a result, it is no wonder that he wants for us to kill one another and to die. And so we see that slithering serpent, we see the devil entering into creation, we see him tempting humanity to, to enter into his own rebellion, we see humans falling into this, and then what do we see following it? Death. Not just divine judgment and the taking back of life from humanity, but humanity taking life into its own hands and killing. The first children of the first humans, Cain and Abel, murder comes. And we read in Genesis chapter 4, uh, God cr crying out, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Death has come. Murder has come. We read in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, the divine law of God, that whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the Imago Dei, the image of God, he made man. Now, it's, it's worth noting here with Genesis 9, 6 in front of us, it's worth noting here, there are critics of the Bible who are going to say things like, oh, the Bible, you know, it's full of contradictions. Doesn't the Bible say, thou shalt not kill? And here in Genesis 9, it says, well, you can kill, in terms of corporal punishment. You say, well, no, 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 the Bible doesn't actually say, thou shalt not kill. It says, thou shalt not murder. And murder is the taking of innocent life. The Bible doesn't have clauses against sort of, you know, self-defense or retribution for those who take life. That's very clear in the text. This is not a contradiction. We are not to take innocent life, but in, in response to uh, murder, there is the taking back of life, according to the text. The principle is murder. Anyway, the fall brings depravity. Depravity brings death. You have Proverbs chapter 6 in front of you. Let me take you now into Proverbs chapter 21. So if you would turn to the right from chapter 6 and find your way to chapter 21. Let me draw your eyes at verse 2. Every man's way is right in his own eyes. We're talking about depravity. We're letting the text of Proverbs speak to us. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs hearts. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Haughty eyes, verse 4, and a proud heart. The lamp of the wicked is sin. Draw your eyes at verse 7. The violence of the wicked will drag them away because they refuse to act with justice. The way of a guilty man is crooked, but as for the pure, his conduct is upright. Then the text goes on to describe the violence of the wicked. Draw your eyes at verse 10. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. The greatest commandment, love God, love your neighbor. They don't love their neighbor because they don't love God. You can't say that you love God if you don't love your neighbor. According to John, you're, you're a liar because they're made in his image. So if you really love God, you will love his image, unlike the devil. You don't love your neighbor. You covet your neighbor. You don't love your neighbor. You kill your neighbor. Now, to the naive, this might sound extreme, the text of Proverbs here. 
especially for those whose heads are in the clouds and who assume that humanity is basically good. I submit to you this is one of the things that is leading to the great divide in our culture because we have people who think humanity is fundamentally good and we have people who realize reality that humanity is actually fundamentally bad. To those with their heads in the clouds who think humanity is, 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 is just all fine, it's all peaches and cream or whatever, uh, to those who have their feet on the ground, they go, hey, look, you, 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 guys, you guys haven't spent enough time, one, in scripture and alone with your own heart. Something is not right. And the problem isn't merely out there, it's in here. And the twistedness of the problem means that it is easier for us to see the problems out there than it is for us to see the problems in here. I think all the, mar all the married people in the room, you should be able to amen that. You can see the problems in your spouse more than you can see it in yourself. You, you can see, oh, they left a dirty dish or they left something on the ground or whatever, but you can't see how often you do it as well. I'm probably going to get some counseling this week. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Pastor Matt, we'd like to talk about that. The uh, problem isn't just out there. The problem is in here. And that brings me to the next point on the outline. We move from introduction for the disciples to Imago Dei to introducing the debate. Why am I talking about Imago Dei? Why am I talking about death? Why do I have us in Proverbs talking about these vices and talking about the fall of creation and talking about humans and bloodshed? Because recently on Friday, June 24, 2022, the Supreme Court of this country, the United States of America, issued a verdict that overturned a major... 1973 case known as Roe versus Wade. If you haven't figured out my reference to Roe by now, uh, now, now you can put it in tech. Imago, I sure that's Latin for, for image. And then Roe is taking us to this significant rumbling in our culture. This case infamously involved the highest court of our land making it illegal uh, to protect innocent life of children in the womb from being murdered by chemical and surgical procedures that take away their innocent lives. We have been living, if you will, in the bloody image, the Imago of Roe, ever since, hence the title Imago Roe. Prior to this case, the laws all around the country, prior to this case, all around the country, laws protected the life of children in the womb from murder. You go back into the 1800s and you see the American Medical Association fighting abortion and calling for the criminalization of those who willfully killed babies in the womb. Now, uh, granted, if, if, if this is something you go, oh my gosh, this is my first time in church, I can't believe, you know, what, whoa, what a topic or whatever. Or you're listening to this and you're going, oh, you know, I, I, I disagree. I, I think this is what, I don't think abortion is taking life or whatever. I think it's about a woman's body and, uh, you know, okay, you know, that, uh, great. I'm glad you're listening and I hope you'll keep listening. I, I hope you, I hope you will give me a chance to appeal to you this morning. Further, I hope that you will see that uh, contrary to maybe some public opinion, uh, the pulpit of, of, of the church is, is not, is not a, a stage for politics. This is not a political issue. This is a moral issue. States and local governments across the country fought to protect the lives of babies. The right and the left once had commonality in this. The most precious and vulnerable citizens of a constitutional republic this should be something that people of goodwill should be able to come together on. Speaking of constitutional republic, the Roe decision not only failed to protect the constitutional right of life and liberty, but it also took away the given power of the states in this constitutional republic of this union to govern themselves in keeping with said constitution. This was a gross betrayal of the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. 
which is to be an interpreter of the Constitution and a guardian of it. Instead, it re- or misinterpreted the Constitution of the Republic, undermining the states of the Union and acting as though it, the Supreme Court, were some sort of a legislative body by adding what it perceived to be a new so-called right to the Constitution, namely the right to terminate the life of another, which I would say that, that's not a right at all. That's an evil. That's not a right. That's an evil. And, and let's be clear, we're specifically talking about children in the womb. Now, mind you, like most court cases, there is a history behind it. And many things in this country, there is an ugly history of racism, oppression, greed, and more. When you follow the historical evidence, you find that the abortion movement was trailblazed by white supremacists and eugenicists. For example, the organization Planned Parenthood, which isn't about planning or parenthood, which is the largest single provider of abortion in the United States, it was founded by a white supremacist and eugenicist, Margaret Sanger. Sanger's racist viewpoint saturated her writings. For example, in November 1921, in the Birth Control Review, Sanger referred to African Americans and Jewish people as bad stock, to her own white race as a race of thoroughbreds. In, 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 in 1992, uh, Woman Morality Birth Control, uh, we, we read that birth control must lead, ultimately, to a cleaner race, 1922. In 1933, in, again, the Birth Control Review, she declared that Slavs, Latin, Hebrew immigrants, that they are human weeds, they are the dead weight of human waste. She referred to black people and Jewish people as a menace to the race. She talks about eugenic sterilization as a, quote, urgent need that, that we must employ to prevent the multiplication of this bad, in reference to African-American stock. It is worth noting here that the slogan for the birth control review and for the movement was creating a race of thoroughbreds, quote unquote. So with this in mind, it should be no surprise that in 1933, the magazine featured an article entitled, here, let me put it in front of you, Eugenic Sterilization, an Urgent Need. It was authored by Adolf Hitler's director of genetic sterilization, Ernst Rudin, who was the founder of the Nazi Society for Racial Hygiene. Sanger's ties to the Nazis and racists are, are well known. This isn't like conspiracy theory, uh, Pastor Matt put on his aluminum foil hat this week or whatever. This is, this is well known. Sanger spoke to KKK groups. KKK loved her. Now, speaking of ties, on the board of her American Birth Control League, which later was renamed and rebranded as Planned Parenthood, on the board sat Lothrop Stoddard, the conspiracy theorist and KKK member who authored the white supremacist bestseller, The Rising Tide of Color Against the White World Supremacy. There you see it. It documents the connections of abortion, white supremacy, the eugenics of minorities, like Sanger Stoddard, was tied to the Nazis, a great influence to the Nazis. It's interesting to note that Stoddard is referenced in the popular book, The Great Gatsby, which many of us uh, probably read in English classes by American author F. Scott Fitzgerald. As one cultural commentator has observed, and I quote in the book, the character Tom Buchanan reads a book entitled The Rise of the Colored Empires by this man named Goddard. Fitzgerald spoke of this man named Goddard, which was a combination of Madison Grant, hence the G, and Lothrop Stoddard. Grant, Stoddard, Goddard, you see. The rising tide of color against the white world supremacy. 
Anyway, in, in the text of, of The Great Gatsby, we read, everyone ought to read it. The idea is that if we don't look out for the white race, we will be, we'll be utterly submerged. It is scientific stuff. It has been proven. Suffice it to say, the racial history is wild. The oppression is wild. In fact, the Roe vs. Wade uh, uh, whole story is just, uh, it's a wild story. Talk about Wade for a second. Uh, Wade, this whole infamous case, uh, Roe, you see, is a pseudonym for Jane Roe. We talk about John Doe's and Jane Roe's. Roe's just a pseudonym to protect the identity of a, of a female or a John Doe to uh, protect the identity of a male. In this case, uh, she came forward later. Her name is Norma McCorvey. She came forward and she recounted how the anti-life movement used her. Norma was born in a broken home of divorced parents. She was born in violence and abuse, uh, substance abuse, alcoholism. She, she failed out of school at a very early age. She got married at the age of 16 to, to a man who abused her. She left him. She developed further addictions. Subsequently, she uh, lived a life of homosexuality. She identified as a lesbian. She lost her child to the authorities. She got pregnant uh, uh, yet again, and she placed that child for adoption. At the age of 21, she got pregnant for a third time, and an ambulance chaser, abor abortion lawyers, found out about her, and they filed a case using her against the Dallas District Attorney, Henry Wade, hence Roe versus Wade, Norman McCorvey Wade. That's where the title comes from. It went on for three years. McCorvey never attended a single trial at all. She never showed up in court. She was used. She was a pawn in this. She had her baby. She placed her baby for uh, uh, adoption. The Roe baby is alive today. You can Google. You can see interviews with her, in fact. She was used for the case. She was later recruited to be an activist for abortion. Long story short, Norma McCorvey had a stint in her life where she came to Christ. She was baptized as a Christian. It was publicly aired on the television, on the news. Roe got saved, and everyone watched her baptism on the news. She became an ardent spokeswoman against the abortion machine. The hegemony hated it. In fact, shamefully, after her death, abortion activists put together a documentary entitled AKA Jane Roe, claiming that she had a, a deathbed confession uh, when she, just before she died, that she was no longer pro-life and, and what have you, which is shameful yet again. It's like she's just been used and used and used her whole life. She can't even die without someone trying to posthumously use her. Roe vs. Wade was a case of those in power using the poor, using the hurting, using the broken for sordid gain. Affluent white southern attorneys preyed on this poor woman. One of these southern white attorneys, Linda Coffey, was herself a lesbian who was trying to attack Texas courts uh, against traditional marriage and admitted to using the case of, of Roe for that agenda. It had nothing to do with her and everything to do with trying to overturn laws against marriage. So with that in mind, the affluent, the white supremacy, with that in mind, with that context in mind, think about the audacity to invoke Reconstructionist civil amendments, specifically the 14th Amendment, which was for the just equal protection of former slaves. Think about the audacity of invoking that to justify the targeted genocide of minorities, and then using that to gain power to legalize the murdering of black and Hispanic Americans. I, this is insane. 
And today they continue to spend millions and millions of dollars marketing to minorities. Well over 70% of abortion clinics, in fact closer to 80%, are in minority neighborhoods. You can just think anecdotally, right? Like you've seen one in Manhattan Beach, you've seen one in Hermosa, you've seen one over here in the playa. You've seen the one in the playa, right? No, but you've seen them in Inglewood, right? 79% are in minority neighborhoods. African Americans are a little over 10% of the population right now, and yet over 40% of abortion comes from black babies. The black population would be so much larger. When I hear people deny that systemic racism exists today, I'm like, you've heard about abortion, right? It's propped up by systems. It's quite systemic. Abortion is the number one cause of death in the African-American community. It's more than violent crime. It's more than cancer. It's more than AIDS. It's more than heart disease. I could go on. And that, friends, is systemic, and that, friends, is not by accident. It's engineered. Sanger was a racist. And consider the fact, consider this, that more than 90% of abortionists are white males. What about the patriarchy? Right? Don't we always hear about the patriarchy? Where's the chance against the patriarchy when 90% of those killing babies are white males? Dolores Bernadette Greer, in her testimony before the Senate Labor and Human Resources Committee in the, in the uh, 1990 hearing on the so-called Freedom of Choice Act, she said this, and I quote, black women never requested, demanded, nor demonstrated for the right to have an abortion. It was thrust upon us as a solution to our social and economic crises. The white master is still telling black people what is best for us, death instead of life. 97% of abortionists who kill unborn black babies are white American males. The sources indicate, and I quote, in 2008, black women had abortions at a rate 3.4 times higher than white women. Over their lifetime, black women average 1.6 more pregnancies than white women, but are five times more likely to have a pregnancy that ends in abortion. That's more than 16 million black babies that have died in abortion since 1973. Approximately 360,000 preborn black babies are aborted every year. That's 1,000 black babies a day murdered in the land of the free. Greer famously wrote, Yesterday, they snatched babies from our arms and sold them into slavery. Today, they snatch them from our womb and throw them into the garbage. And the way all this is done is set up for us in Proverbs. We have the playbook in front of us. I said this ancient book is a relevant book in the introduction. In Proverbs chapter 6, we read, Concerning those who devise wicked schemes. Isn't that what we read? Those who plot evil. Isn't that what we read? We read about the feet that are quick to rush into evil. They are quick. They're enthusiastic and energetic, even self-righteous in their violence. Further, we read in Proverbs that they're deceitful about it. They lie. They lie. That is exactly what we see in Imago Roe. When Roe was originally argued, its grounds were deceit. To any student of law or history, it should be no secret that the 14th Amendment has absolutely nothing to do with the right to abortion, let alone to the right of privacy. That is, that is not true. Sociopolitical commentaries have observed, and I quote, Roe vs. Wade marks the second time in American history that the Supreme Court has invoked the substantive due process to deny American citizens the authority to protect the basic rights of an entire class of human beings. The first time, of course, was the court's infamous 1875 decision in the Dred, Scott, uh, the Dred Scott v. Uh, Sanford case, 
There the court held that the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which prohibited slavery in the northern portion of the Louisiana territories, could not constitutionally be applied to persons who, who, bought their who brought their slaves into free territory. Roe is the Dred Scott of our age. Continue the quote. Like few other Supreme Court cases in our nation's history, Roe is not merely patently wrong, but also fundamentally hostile to core precepts of American government and citizenship. Now, what is meant by this quote? Well, prior to Roe, like everything else outside of the Constitution, the states deal with it. This is why in some states you can smoke the reefer, and in other states you can't. This is why in some states you can do this, and in other states you can't do this. What happened in Roe, however, was a lawless power grab by the Supreme Court, an unconstitutional act of aggression by the powers to make the unthinkable federal law. Now, ironically, using federal power to argue against the Declaration of Independence that all humans are created equal and endowed by their creator with an inalienable right to God, which warrants the protection of the lives of unborn human beings. Instead of standing in the truth, the powers have erected and sat upon a throne of lies. In the last two weeks, the lies have continued and they just get louder and louder. All over the media, we see people protesting and claiming the right to have an abortion has been taken away from us. And if you can uh, stomach TikTok, you know, you've got all kinds of, you know, ah, just raging, they've taken away my right to kill my offspring. Uh, never mind that that's not an actual right. Never mind the fact that that actually hasn't been taken away, and that's just not true whatsoever. What, what took place in that decision didn't, didn't take away abortion from anyone. All that it did was return it to the states. So watching the media and watching, you know, even social media feeds and you know, people I love and seeing them under the spell of this, you go, they took away this from, you didn't get, nothing got taken, nothing, I don't even know why this is really news, nothing got taken away, it's still legal. Why are you freaking out, especially if you're in California, why are you freaking out? Because you've been lied to. You've been lied to. And, and your master, who you obey, is telling you to be upset. And like a good slave, you're following your master. You've been lied to. Your master has lied to you. More, more, more fundamentally than being lied to, however, you fail to see the sanctity of human life and you fail to see the systemic racism of this culture and the machine of abortion. That said, machines are no match for God and his grace. Another reason why we're in Proverbs isn't just to see uh, and, and to understand these, these vices, but also to be reminded, Proverbs chapter 21, where I ask you to turn, draw your eyes at verse 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. What a great verse for the last two weeks. In the ancient world, the king would be in charge of the public works, like making sure that the city gets water. And so the king's servants and his workers would make water channels to direct water from a a, a, a body of water and to channel it over into the city so that people would have water inside of the city. The king was responsible for this, but like a king who controls and directs water, God controls and directs actual kings to do his bidding in his common graces. Even the most powerful God controls. And in this modern case, the most powerful court in the land has been turned. People are going, how did this happen? How did this happen? Oh my gosh. I'm like, 
Well, you know, the, the king's heart is the channels of the water and it's in the hand of the Lord. That's how that happens. God chooses to use the prayers of his people and the labor of his people to turn the tide against evil. And this is what the, this is what the data shows. Let's move to the next point on our, on our outline, immense data. You know, when Roe was originally popping, people were ignorant about pregnancy. Technology was rapidly developing and becoming accessible at the time. Unfortunately and conveniently for the, the so-called pro-choice movement, they kept the science at bay. Scientifically speaking, at the point of conception, the unborn human is a unique individual living being. This is very important because we're seeing in TikTok and you know, in the media and whatever that it's just a blob of cells, it's just a potential life. No, no science actually disagrees. Dr. Roth from Harvard University Medical School uh, says, and I quote, it is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. It's growing, it's developing, it's responding, it's functioning, it's burning food and oxygen, it's giving off waste, its cells are reproducing, it has, it has its, uh, a unique genetic code. These are all the properties of a living thing. This isn't potential, it, it's actual, it's actually alive, it's life. The abortionist says, no one knows when life begins. That, that, that's just a lie. That's on the list of things that God hates. That's a lie. In the process of the reproduction of, of any living being, there is no beginning of life in general. So that's, that's just patently absurd. There is no period of non-life in the sequence of events from mating to birth in living creatures. The mother and the father are alive, so are the individual sperm and egg. Those are alive. The zygote formed from their union is alive. The developing fetus is alive. By the way, when people say, oh, it's just a fetus, you, you know fetus is the Latin word for baby, right? You, you know that, right? You, you do, right? It's like, it's a baby, okay? Now, finally, the child delivered at birth is alive. It didn't come alive after it was born. It didn't come alive after the umbilical cord was cut. It's alive. It was alive in the whole process. Now, I'm dumbfounded with this because specifically I heard this week about a church in, in Westchester, just down the street, Sepulveda, uh, that has a sign in front of it that says, life begins at first breath, with a reference to Genesis 2-7. If you know your Bible well enough, you know that's when God breathed life into Adam and he created him or whatever, and you go... You're seriously going to use Genesis 2-7 to twist it as a part of the rhetoric of the abortion machine that life doesn't begin until the baby gets out and has its first breath? The wrath of God stands against these false churches. From beginning to end, there is an un unbroken continuum of life. Life does not begin at some stage of development. The unborn is alive at every stage, and the fact that the fetus is growing biologically proves that it is alive. And the biological growth is evident immediately upon conception. Which brings me back to what I said about technology developing around the time of Roe. In the mid-1950s, a Scottish obstetrician, Ian Donald, began the first to apply ultrasound technology to a pregnant lady. In the 1960s, he helped design the diasonograph, which paved the way for the world's first commercial ultrasound scanners. In the 1970s, when Roe was popping, those started to become affordable. And so around the time of Roe, the technology was coming in, so that by the time of the 1980s, people were able to see the life and to see it developing. In fact, there is a documentary, and if you haven't watched it and you're an adult, just Google Silent Scream. It's on YouTube and watch it. Someone took ultrasound technology. It's, a go it's, it's gory, be forewarned. Took ultrasound technology of a, of a living human being, 
in the act of abortion. And so you watch the sonogram, you watch the image of a human life fighting for its life as it's dismembered and sucked out of the womb on an ultrasound for you to see. You get to see what it looks like, and hence the title, The Silent Scream, because it's the screams of a child in the womb that would never be heard. But the sonogram documents it. It's undeniable. Recently, Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor, appointed by Obama, in public argued against the evidence of babies facing agony as they are murdered in the womb. Clearly, you have not watched the sonograms of, of babies dismembered. Watching this baby in silent scream just with its limbs and its mouth opening and crying out in agony. And so, Sotomayor had the gall to say that, well, you know, corpses, like dead people, you can like touch their foot or pinch their foot and, and, and they recoil at it, but we know they're dead. And so same too with these, these babies in the womb recoiling as you're chopping their limbs off. It's like, have you lost your mind? You're comparing babies to dead corpses? Do you understand reflexes? Do you understand basic anatomy and biology? Do you know that doctors give anesthesia to babies in the womb in, in the second trimester when they perform operations because they feel pain? That's scientific fact as early as 12 weeks. It's in all the scientific literature. It's in the ultrasound. You can see it for yourself. Speaking of ultrasounds, for most parents in our culture, you, you've had them. You go to the doctor, you, you, can see, you see the little heartbeat, and you see them sucking their little thumb. You see the sonogram image, you see the head and the spine and the lips, and, and you see those little fingers, and you, you see this early on, week six, week 12, week 11, 12, around there, the genitals form, and do you want to know if it's a boy or a girl? That's back when we believed in boys and girls, right? And you, oh, it's like, it's a boy or a girl. Who are you to say, right? It's so obvious. It's so obvious what is going on. Now, why don't people see it if it's so obvious? Well, Proverbs is telling us. The text of Scripture is telling us. Again, we're sinners by nature, so we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We have this problem of sin. God's way we resist. The way of the wicked we're quick to run into. Further, why we resist is because there's a whole lot of money at stake in this. Planned Parenthood reports record high numbers in recent years. Here I'll put the numbers from 2018, you know, pre-COVID madness so you can see. Almost $1.9 billion in net assets for Planned Parenthood, up from $1.6 in 2017. $563.8 million in taxpayer funding. $1.67 billion in total revenue. Almost $245 million in excess of revenue over expenses, more than double the $98.5 million that was reported the year prior. $630.8 million in private contributions, grants, bequests, corporate contributions. That's up from $532.7 million the year before. There's a saying, people get funny when it comes to money. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Proverbs. You got chapter 21 in front of you. Flip, flip to the left, back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 11. Come with us. Let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Verse 13, Proverbs 1. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. There it is in the Word of God thousands of years before all of this. 
People get funny when it comes to money because there is money to be made off of blood. Think about the industrial war complex. Think about wars. Think about, and I'm a just war theorist, I think there's times to throw down and what have you, but think about the money that's made off of them. We make money in a fallen world off of bloodshed. So how are we to respond? If you're quick with the finger, turn from chapter 1 back to chapter 21, verse 22, we read that a wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. Look at it, look at it. Proverbs 21, 22. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses the language of strongholds, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, and talks about how we as believers are called to demolish strongholds, which are arguments that are set up against the truth of God. Now, quickly, we have to move quickly here. Let's move from the immense data into indefensible declarations, and let me quickly equip you to address some of the bad arguments that are peddled in our culture. The sacrifice, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 27 says, of the wicked it is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? A false witness, Proverbs 21, 28, will perish. But the man who listens to the truth will speak forever. A wicked man displays his bold face, but as for the upright, he makes his way sure. There is no wisdom, no understanding, and no counsel against the Lord. So let's consider the truth of the Lord in the Lord's creation. They will argue it's just a clump of cells. It's just a random clump of cells. Now, I've already addressed this. It's, it's not. It's, it's reproducing. It's giving off waste and so on and so forth. But for sake of argument, it's simple to point back, well, adults are clumps of cells too. Can we just start whacking them? Obviously not. So then that argument doesn't work. They will argue that if, if I'm not allowed to have an abortion, it's going to ruin my life. It's going to ruin women's lives. It's going to ruin their lives. They're going to ruin their lives. And to this, we need to respond that women need to know that no, no matter what, the opposite is actually true. The having of life is not going to ruin your life. Women need to hear this. They are strong. Women are strong. They are stronger than this. Think of the messaging here. You weak women, you can't, it, this is going to ruin you. You don't have enough strength to deal with this. This is, this is, you're not going to be able to do anything. You're just that weak. Think of the messaging in that. You, you're not going to be able to achieve if you have this. No, 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 no. Women are strong. I'm married to a strong woman. I'm raising strong women. One of my daughters is a junior black belt. She'll punch you in the neck. She's strong. No, no, you are strong. Your circumstances got nothing on you. You can be an amazing mother. You can still continue in school, you can finish school, you can still climb a corporate ladder. You know what? You can do it all. I believe women are stronger than this messaging. Every woman is stronger than their circumstances, no matter what situation they are in. As a culture, as a community, we should be rooting for our women and telling them they're stronger than this. Abortion tells women that you can't. You're weak. You can't finish college. You can't finish your dreams. You can't do this. And you know what I say? That's misogyny. That's the patriarchy. That's the message of the patriarchy there, and it's disgusting. I think about the athlete Allison Felix. Her father's a pastor, a friend of our church. Uh, she's a, an amazing Olympian, gold medalist, and whatever. And if you haven't read her op-ed for the New York Times in 2019, it's worth reading. She was sponsored by Nike, and Nike allegedly was giving her 70% less or whatever when she got pregnant and wasn't supportive of her when she got pregnant. And 
so on and so forth. And so she ditched Nike. She started a new shoe company, and she's doing things. And she's super cool, awesome, just high respect for her. But, but I mean, that's just it. Like, the culture is like, oh, you can't get pregnant. We're going to pull your sponsor. Oh, you're too weak. You're not going to be able to compete and be a mom. Well, you know what? I know, I know sisters like Allison who love the Lord and who press on and still get medals. And so in your face to this bold-faced lie, it's not going to ruin your life. This is ridiculous. Third, another objection we hear is this, this is, this is your religion. You're imposing your religion on others. No, I'm talking about sonograms and biogenesis and just basic science here. I don't know what you're talking about. Not, I, I mean, I'm in church here, so I'm teaching the Bible and stuff like that. But what I'm engaging in conversation is just basic conversation about how science works. Uh, but, but, but further, you know, for sake of argument then, it, you know, if, you're, if the claim itself that you can't impose your religion on others is a claim that can't be corroborated by science itself, so there's something that's making that imposition, which I would submit is a religious pretext itself. So if you can't impose your religion on others, then why are you imposing your religion on me, namely this re religion that can't impose religions? You can't even get this accusation started. It contradicts itself. The next claim that we have is the claim that pro-life is racist. Well, I've already kind of dismantled that one. Uh, yeah, we've kind of already seen the whole thing there. But, you know, never mind, Sanger. We're going we're gonna to whitewash that. You know, well, Clarence Thomas, and, and, you know, what about Loving versus Virginia? And, and they're going to undo interracial marriage, they're saying. Which is just hilarious because Clarence Thomas is actually married to a white woman. So that's just absurd. What are you even talking about? He can't undo Loving versus Virginia. Loving versus Virginia ruled that laws against interracial marriage were unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause, not the Privacy Clause. That's just, a, that's just an absurd lie. That's not what's going on. This isn't a racist. Well, okay, fine, it's not racist. It's Republican. It's, it's, it's a Republican thing. It's you right-wingers. No, it's actually not. Uh, the opposite of that is actually true. You know, of the seven justices who supported Roe v. Wade in 1973, that dis the, the decision that struck down the pre-viability abortion bans, five of the seven justices were appointed by Republican presidents, including the author of the majority opinion, Harry Blackman, the then Chief Justice uh, Warren Burger. All five justices who voted to confirm the constitutional right of abortion, they were appointed by Republican presidents. You got abortion because of the Republicans. What are you talking about? Republican President Nixon promoted this. I'll show you a spattering of quotes here, and there's a bad word that's used in them that I've kind of tried to code there for the adults in the room. Here's a spattering of quotes from, from Nixon. Oh, he's very, very clearly all about that abortion life and dealing with those, you know, those, those black B words. This is, you, can, you can hear this on the White House tapes. Republicans were all about that killing babies lifestyle. What are you talking about? They were, they were all about this life. Now, that said, in today's uh, context, of, of course, Democrats need to understand, yeah, this is not a bipartisan issue. There's actually a group, Democrats for Life. There's Democrats that are pro-life. You know that, right? But Democrats have a huge issue in that on their own platform, they marginalize and push Democrats for life out. Democrats have a huge issue, a huge issue. They regularly block bills against infanticide. Virginia Democratic Governor Ralph Northam was in the press arguing that children after birth 
could have their lives ended if their parents decided that they didn't want them to live. There, there is a problem, to be sure, with one of the parties. But in terms of making it the other party's sort of agenda or whatever, that's just simply not the case. That's not historically true, and that's not the case today. Okay, fine, you're dismantling all of my arguments, but it's, 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 most doctors uh, agree with me, though, that we should be able to do this. It, it's a rare number of doctors that actually think that life begins at conception. Now, one, one that's just not true, but secondly, uh, you don't determine truth by a vote. So if all the mathematicians got together and decided to vote that 2 plus 2 isn't 4, that doesn't mean that 2 plus 2 isn't 4. I don't, I don't care if none of the doctors believe it. That doesn't change the state of affairs. That, that's just not a good argument. Well, okay, fine. What about rape? What about rape? Okay, fine. For sake of argument, let's say that we allow for abortion for instances of rape. Do you agree with me then that all other reasons we should not allow? Well, no. Well, then why are you bringing it up? You're disingenuous with your objection. I would just grant that for sake of conversation. And every time that I have, the response is, well, well no. Well, then it's a disingenuous objection. And, and for sake of statistics, 1% of women obtain an abortion because they became pregnant through rape. 1%. So this, you're, you're using this, this small thing to try and argue for it. It doesn't work that way. Well, what about rights? What about rights? You know? Uh, I'm a woman, and, and it's my right, and you're a man, and you don't have a right to, to, to tell me what, what I get to do with my own body. Uh, you're right. I, I, I'm not going to make laws against you getting tattoos or your nose pierced or, you know, cutting your hair or your nails. or I mean, we've got a, a famous Hollywood lady who chopped off her, her breasts and is posing as a man. Uh, if you want to chop off parts of your body and, you know, uh, call yourself a different gender, that's your body, you can knock yourself out, you can do what you want. But we're not talking about your body. You don't have four lungs and two hearts. You don't have 20 fingers and 20 toes. This is a separate body. And this argument that you're a man, you can't speak on it, also can't even get started because you know what? The Roe thing was passed by seven men. It was written by men. The textbook subsequent to the decision written by men. So you're living under a delusion if you think that this is a women's issue. It's the men who gave you the right to do the murdering of the Imago Roe. Besides, if it is a men's issue, you can't get pregnant without a man. Well, if you turn over Roe, then men have to pay. And men already have to, have to pay. You've heard of child support, haven't you? For, and for 18 years, they're going to have to pay on this thing. Uh, there's a, there's a, a funny YouTube video that was made of uh, pro-choice men, and it's a great spoof. I'll, I'll post it later so you guys can find it, but it's men in this video, and they're like pro-choice, and they're like, I should have a right to live in my mom's basement and play video games and not have to have child support, you know? Like, what are, what are you talking about? Men, men are, they have to step up. They have to support. That's the law. That, they don't have a decision in this. And father absence is an epidemic in our country, and I'm trying to end this sermon, so don't even get me started. We had that McDonald's video going viral this week of the guy bringing McDonald's to his one kid, and the baby's mama was like, where's the McDonald's for my other illegitimate children? You know, it's, it's crazy. We've got pregnant man emojis. Mr. Potato Head is going to be gender neutral. Uh, California's got laws coming for non-gender toy sections. I mean, we've lost our mind. But again, I've got I to finish the sermon. So implication and duties. 
Implication and duties. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. This is the word of the Lord. I'm expositing the text of Scripture, applying it to something in our culture. Hear the word of the Lord. When sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Proverbs 1.11, come with us. Let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Throw in your lot with us, Proverbs 1.14. We shall have one purse. We'll make some money off of this. Proverbs 1.15, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. So this morning, we're, we're reminded of these vices from Scripture. We see how they're alive today in the fallen world. We're reminded, as I started, that it's easier to spot sin in others than it is in our own hearts. And so we need to be reminded that when we're talking about this issue of life and whatever, look, this isn't the bad liberals out there or the people on this side of the political spectrum. This is all of us. This is all of us. This is where we would be but by the grace of God. And so the implication for this is that all of us, we come in repentance. We've talked about Imago Roe and Imago Dei. Uh, let's talk about Imago Christi. As believers, we have been made to be in the image of Christ, Imago Christi. The true man has come, Christ, and he has done what the first man did not do. He gave himself for us. The theme of Imago Christi is picked up in the New Testament, Romans 8, 29, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. You can look it up. Where we're, we're told that we're being made into the Imago Christi, the image of the Son, Romans 8, 29. We've been, we're, we're being made into his image in salvation to, to mirror him. He's the telos of our lives. We're going to have communion in a moment. We're going to sing to him in a moment. We need to be reminded. We need him. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Maybe you haven't had an abortion and and you can go, oh, those people, you know what? You have the same problems in your heart that deal with that. Maybe you haven't acted on them because God in his grace has allowed that to be restrained. But don't you dare look at another and think somehow you're above that. And for, you know, statistically, uh, in terms of the numbers out there, there's likely sisters who are listening to this message who say, I, I was deceived, I was led astray, I was t uh, you know, and I went through with this. And you carry... Uh, emotions and regrets and, and, and things related to this. The, the, you need to hear the good news of the gospel, of the Christ who forgives, who lifts your guilt, who lifts your shame, who forgives you, who, who, who loves you. The, that's the implication of it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The broken, the, the deceived, those with blood on their hands, those with regrets, we're, we're all in that camp, and he stands to forgive you all. So you can hear the law, don't do this, but hear the good news that he has come, he has done it for you. Be Imago Christi, come to him. Be, secondly, informed. This message was intended to equip you. I've been burdened seeing the stuff going on in the news. Last week we had a guest speaker, and so it's sort of pent up, so it's a long message, but I, I want to equip you to engage some of the stuff that's going on. You know, Sanger, Sanger, and there's not time to give you the quotes on it, but Sanger actually persuaded and pursued black churches with her, with her agenda. And, and as a result, like, it's taken captive in churches. I shared with you this Westchester church down the street, Life Begins at Breath. We need to be informed, and we need to start calling churches to repentance specifically. 
yes, call the world, show the world what's wrong, and give them arguments and life and whatever, and zygotes and biogenesis. Yes, yes, yes. But we need to call God's people to be informed on this topic. We need to thirdly be interceding. Uh, we're reminded with this overturn, look, this, you know, people are like, oh, you know, it was Trump, or it was this, or it was that. You know. No, it was God. It was God. That's what we saw, that's what we saw in Proverbs 21. It's God who controls the hearts of the kings like waters in his hand. And I, I pray this morning that the Lord will continue using little churches like just little churches like ours to shape the whole nation in these radical ways. I read a story this week on the Holocaust. This week on ABC News, there was a 101-year-old man who was convicted in Germany of more than 3,500 counts of accessory to murder for serving as a Nazi concentration camp uh, a soldier, killing Jews, and, and was, uh, was convicted. This, this week I was reading about it. And, and I'm just reminded, you know, of, of like how there was a time in human history where there was millions of people who thought it was just fine to kill Jewish people. There was a time in American history where just millions of white people thought it was fine to enslave black people. And, and, and God, in his grace, turned the tide to say, you know, a consensus, largely of people, that's not to say there's not still anti-Semites and white supremacists, but a consensus where people go, hey, this is wrong. We need to be interceding that God's going to turn the tide on this, and we'll see people amago row. Well, no, that that that's wrong. We need to be reminded, though, that the devil, as I said, he hates the image of God, and so he's raging. He's raging. Our response is prayer and humility. The world's response is violence and deceit. Uh, there was an individual accused of attempting to assassinate the Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh. You know, like, I'll kill him. I'll kill him. There's a guy who says, I'm going to kill him. There's real forces of, of wickedness that are going against this. Congresswoman Maxine Waters responded to the news this week, and I quote in the news, to hell with the Supreme Court. We will defy them. They ain't seen nothing yet. Women are going to control their bodies no matter how they try to stop them. Maxine's in the media saying, fight. To hell with the Supreme Court. We'll defy them. You've, you haven't seen anything yet. We're hearing calls of violence. I mean, we, in January, we saw calls of violence, and you're right, there's a, there's a whole thing going on about that now, and we see others making calls of violence. You go, yeah, but you know what? That's the way of the world. That's not the way of God's people. The way of God's people is a way of humility, where we say, but by the grace of God, we would be on that side. Lord, be merciful to them. Open their eyes. We need to be involved. It's one thing to say this is bad. It's another thing to get involved. Uh, we need more people to be adopting. We've got 20,000 orphans in L.A. County alone. We need more people to be adopting. I was interviewed by the L.A. Times uh, around the verdict, and I, I think partly why they didn't use my story in the Times is, be, is because, you know, I turned the conversation to adoption and, and to getting involved in adopting. You know that for every 117 abortion that is performed, we have one adoption. That's a problem. God's people need to put our, our, our money where our mouth is. Planned Parenthood is a multi-million dollar operation. The church needs to be sacrificing for mission. And our church in, in, included in this, behind budget, struggling, trying to make ends meet, trying to push on, trying to... God's people need people who are going to be giving. In California in particular, there's a mass exodus. We've got Governor Newsom who's promised to turn the state into a sanctuary state for death. 
What's going to happen if God's people pull, pull up ship and stop giving and stop serving and aren't, aren't involved to this end? We need the church to respond. It's going to take this. It's going to take intentionality. That's the last point on our outline. We've got to conduct ourselves like we believe the Most High rules the kingdoms of men. Even if the advocates of abortion vilify us and attack us, we should respond in love. And I say this, I say this, watching the media and seeing my brothers on the right responding not with love, but responding with mockery, and, and, and they're engaging in the weapons of the world. We need to respond with love and compassion. We need to be intentional. We need to show the world the love of Christ. Uh, George Yancey is a noted sociologist and a believer. He posted this week, how you treat people you like and want to defend tells me nothing about your Christian faith. How you treat those you do not like and think are the problem tells me so much more about your Christian faith. Uh, oh, that's good. That's good. May we respond to this end. May we respond to Imago Row with Imago Day and Imago Christi, showing the world the patience of Christ, the love of Christ, calling, of course, repentance to come to him, calling the world to see him. So now as we close our service with communion and we celebrate the one who has come, let us all be reminded that we stand guilty of gross sin, gross sin, but he would receive us. And may that humble us, may that give us a compassion for the world, and may we respond in worship. Let's pray, let's have communion, let's sing. Father, we thank you. that you didn't leave us fallen and broken in the dark, but you shined a light and you pulled us out of the darkness. You took our brokenness and you mended us. You took our sinful hearts and gave us new ones. You took our vices and nailed them to the cross on the innocent lamb, and you gave us his virtues. We come to the communion table reminded of the one broken for us, whose blood was shed for us. And as we partake, Lord, I pray that there would be none here this day who, who would leave not knowing you, not being forgiven by you, not being washed by you. Lord, we, we, we thank you for your love for us. We intercede for the state of California. We intercede for these corrupt politicians making calls of violence. We intercede for these uh, corrupt churches that have pastors who, who are wolves, who preach death, who support this hegemony of systemic racism that ripples through the land, that takes the life of, of black and brown bodies made in your image. Lord, we, we pray against the, the wickedness of this land and pray that your, your spirit would restrain evil and use your church ordain that our prayers would be used by you to hold back evil as we await the return of the king, the tribulation that is to come, that we will be raptured from. Lord, we pray for the day of judgment to draw near, for your patience, Lord. We, we pray and we await the return of your son, who we proclaim as we come to this table now. In his name we ask this. Amen.